how do we talk about depression so that we can keep the conversation going, find understanding, and begin to heal? Or at the very least, help our loved ones begin to heal. Hi, welcome to another episode of Business Mindset Mastery. My name's Heather Gray. I'm a mindset and performance coach for business owners, leaders, and entrepreneurs. You can always find me over at choosetohaveitall.com. And today we're taking the hard conversation and we're putting it in the middle of the discussion. We've been talking about and around this issue of depression for the past couple of days on the podcast in response to the national conversation that's been happening in response to recent suicides. When I started talking about this issue on the show last week, I started to get a lot of letters, requests for more understanding, requests for personal help, requests for advice, a lot of different messages in my inbox around a really important topic. I'm a clinically trained therapist and social worker. I've been in the business for 20 years, so it felt like I had a personal responsibility to offer advice, direction, and information that mattered and would move the conversation forward. So to do that, I had to take some time to stop and think about how I wanted to do that. The only way I know how to have this conversation with you guys is to do so transparently and to tell you right off the bat that I am not going to cover this entire topic in a singular podcast episode, nor am I going to be talking about this for episodes on end because it's not the only part that comes to business mindset and I don't want to lose the focus of the show. I'm not going to be answering each specific letter also because in many of the letters I've received or many of the questions I got, I didn't feel as though I had enough specific information to be able to give as concentrated advice as you're used to typically hearing from me. This is a delicate topic, so people spoke to me delicately about it, and I don't want to risk giving advice when I don't know the whole story. But those of you who have written me letters, everybody has gotten a response back for me. If you have written me a letter and you have not gotten a response back for me, please do let me know and double check with me to make sure I indeed received your letter. But anybody who did send me a letter is going to get a response in the discussion we're having. You will hopefully know (laughs) who I'm talking to as I cover each point and we talk about this in greater depth. I also want to communicate transparently here that I'm not giving you a masterclass in understanding depression. There are so many other national conversations going on about that. There's so many places where if you want to know the ins and outs of the disease, um, you can look it up. You can Google it. You can Wikipedia it. Um, I don't need to be the professor for depression. What I do need to do, I think, and what's incredibly apparent from these letters is I need to help people understand it on a level that isn't being talked about in the news feeds because there's too many contradictory beliefs. There's all of these messages to people who have loved ones who struggle to reach out, to ask, to show up, to deliver meals, to make people go to the movies, to, you know, do X, Y, Z. And then there's people who are depressed who are saying, you don't even know I'm depressed because I look incredibly high functioning. I'm sitting in your business meetings. I'm sitting at your dinner table and you would never know because I always present as if I have my stuff together. Then there's, you know, people who are saying, but don't ask me to do anything because the symptom of depression is that I don't want to do anything. And it's this constant contradiction of what the right thing to do is. And as a result, the well-meaning, well-intentioned friend or loved one has no clue what to do. The depressed client or person suffering, you know, is so willing to try something new, so willing to do something differently, but they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing because some people are telling them to use different essential oils. Some people are saying you need medication. Some people are saying you need, you know, therapy. Other people are saying you don't need therapy. You need coaching. There's so many different approaches to this. And what's so important that the caregivers, loved ones, and friends know and the sufferers know is there is not one way to treat this beast. There is not a singular right 
answer. The friends and family have to be willing to try different ways of engaging, and the sufferer has to find different ways of getting help and treatment. It's not, I have a headache, I can take Tylenol. I have a headache, I can use acupuncture. I have a headache, I can do this. It's not always that simple. So we're talking about a marathon here, not a race. It's also really important to recognize that everybody gets depressed from at some point in time or another. Clinical depression, depending on how you define it, how you look it up, how you diagnose it, is episodic and it lasts for a period of time. Some professionals will tell you that if you're you know, depressed for four weeks or more, you've entered the clinical realm. Other people I heard recently when I was trying to look up what the current diagnosis status was is two weeks or more. So even amongst professionals, even with the new DSM, there's 50 million different um, diagnoses for like how long the depression needs to last for it to be listed as clinical. But people get into episodes. People have bad moods. People have bad spells. Some of it will be clinical. Some of it won't be. But whether or not it's clinical actually doesn't matter. The answers and the treatment for it and the suggestions for help and relief are often exactly the same. It's important for sufferers to know that and it's important for loved ones to know that because I think sometimes when caregivers are so tired of sort of talking about the same thing to the person who's struggling, they feel like they should just tune out. And when the sufferer feels like all they're doing is talking about the same thing over and over again and people are gonna be bound to stop listening, they stop talking. So what we have to do is keep having the conversation, keep asking the questions, keep communicating transparently so that we understand specifically if you're the sufferer, what your depression is like. And for the loved ones and caregivers, what their your friends and loved ones' depression is like. Because it may not look like your own that you've had in the past, and it may not look like the same of other people you've talked to. It's simply important to ask and to be curious and to have the conversation. So often we don't have the conversation because we don't know what to say. The theme is always going to be, and you hear me say it on the show over and over again, communicating transparently. The thing that we need to recognize and know, regardless of whether or not we are the sufferer or the loved one, is that depression fractures the lens through which the sufferer looks at the world. So the symptoms of depression, the lack of motivation, the low self-esteem, the low drive, the increase in eating, the decrease in eating, the increase in sleeping, the decrease in sleeping, the sort of negative, quote unquote, negative outlook on life, the you know, pessimistic life, um, all of those things exist because depression fractures the lens through which people look at the world. And that's why there's a disconnect between the depression sufferer and the loved one, because the loved one is looking at the world through a very different lens. So as a result, they don't understand the sufferer because they're not seeing the same picture. And then the sufferer feels further isolated, further disconnected because they're not understood. And they, then they don't experience the validation. They think the world is ending. They think it's awful. They think there's no point to doing anything. And their loved ones are like, what are you talking about? It's a nice sunny day. We can go for a drive. We can go for a walk. Come on, get up, like get out of the house. And the sufferer is like, what are you talking about? It's so bad out there. Why would I want to go out there? And that disconnect creates conflict. It creates sort of, I think, a little bit of resentment from a lack of understanding on both sides. It, you know, it creates confusion. It creates a sense of being lost for both the loved one and the sufferer. So, so much of it is about saying out loud, I know you see the world like this right now. I need you to know that this is how I'm seeing it. And that goes true for loved one or sufferer. You've got to talk to people about the way you're looking at the world and say, given how you you're looking at the world, given how I want to help, what can we do together to get you relief? 
And that's the other thing that I think is really important for everybody involved to know and to understand is we are not looking at any point in time in any singular interaction to move someone from depressed to not depressed. That is a marathon process with a lot of mile markers on the road, even if we're talking about a two-week episode or a two-year episode. That what we're working on when we're trying to reach out, when we're trying to help, or when we're accepting an outreach hand, when we're accepting help, is to feel less bad, to feel less heavy, to feel less weighted down. We're just looking to offer or experience moments of relief. One of the reasons why this is such a hard conversation is because of people's expectations. I thought like if I did this, if I showed up, if I gave you a full free day, if I did X, if I did Y, you would be feeling better. Why don't you feel better? Or I thought if I had a full day to do this and I got to do that and this problem went off my back, I would feel better. Why don't I feel better? Treating depression is a marathon. Understanding depression is a marathon. We get through that marathon by changing and adjusting our expectations accordingly, by asking questions about things we don't understand, seeking clarification, and being willing to correct someone when they seem to have the wrong opinion or the wrong, um, you know, understanding or consensus around what might be going on. It's also really important to understand that treatment does help, but there is such a thing as treatment-resistant depression. This kind of came up in a lot of the letters that came up is like, I've done this, I've gone to this therapist, I've hired this coach, I've tried this, I've taken this med, I've done this, and nothing is getting better. Or I've tried to offer my friend this, I said this, I did this, I showed up in this way, and nothing seemed to work. It's important to know that sometimes you are dealing with treatment-resistant depression. It is my bias, it is my strong opinion that when you've sought several professionals, when you've tried several different things, that you get a full, complete diagnostic workup using a medical model. Once you do the medical model, you can decide your treatment outlook if you want. But if you really, in your gut, looking in the mirror, you're not bullshitting anybody or your loved one, you're a loved one watching, and you know that your loved one has tried A, B, and C, and nothing is working, then get the medical professionals involved because most likely at that point, you are going to need some sort of medical intervention. It's past the point where talk therapy is going to work. It's past the point where coach, uh, you know, coaching is going to work. You can't just simply eat better, sleep better, and exercise your way through it. You're going to need a full diagnostic workup. And I would urge everybody to do that. But what ends up happening is I think that sometimes people are just chronically sad or they're chronically um, in a bad mood or disinterested or unmotivated and people can't tell the difference between treatment resistant and um, individual resistant, right? Because part of this is just as much as it's true that there's such a thing as treatment resistant depression, it is also true that some people will be chronically depressed and not want to get better. That is a, I didn't think I was going to start with such a controversial truth at the beginning of the episode, but that is also a part of it. That I can tell you sitting in my office as a brick and mortar private therapist for 10 years, I sat in front of several depressed people who didn't really want to get better because not just because their lens is fractured because they're depressed and they're looking at the world differently, but depression becomes the devil they know. Depression sort of becomes the safe security blanket for them that protects them from responsibility and expectations around, you know, that the world might have of them. It protects them from being hurt. But more than anything, staying depressed protects the sufferer from being happy again and experiencing the loss of that happiness.
The people that you talk to or that you know who are chronically depressed, sometimes you'll tell yourself a story or you'll think it of yourself like, maybe I just want to stay this way. Maybe I don't want to get better. And it's because you have gotten so used to being depressed or your loved one has gotten so used to being depressed that wellness is scary. And that is a conversation people need to have out loud, but so often it's subconscious. I can't, I can't think of a single time where a client came to me with that independent observation without me saying, have you thought about what it would be like if you weren't depressed anymore, what it would feel like, how it could move through the world. And sometimes it just feels like I wouldn't know myself anymore. I, you know, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't recognize myself. I, I've been this way for so long. So it becomes that fear of not knowing, you know, what's going to happen on the other side of wellness. For the sufferer, it's scary and it's really confusing because they're like, what the heck is wrong with me? Who chooses depression? And for the loved ones, it's incredibly frustrating to watch. And it's incredibly hard to see somebody chronically make decisions that are not in their best interest. So it's important to have the conversation out loud. And sometimes if you talk about it out loud and you say, I'm afraid of being happy and losing it, you can say, everyone has happiness and loses it. Everybody has their best days and then has worse, you know, worse days after. We don't get to be happy and stay that way uninterrupted because life happens. But the goal is, is that we teach you how to get to wellness. We support our loved ones in getting to wellness and that that will develop a set of toolboxes and skill sets available so that when life happens, when it gets hard again, the sufferer has more options than they did the first time around. Therapy isn't going to be for everybody. Like, let me just say that truth out loud. Um, and there's all kinds of different therapies. So some of part of what creates confusion around this beast and around this animal is the answer for treatment and the answer for resolution just isn't that simple, isn't that clear. There are so many different points of view on this. You can talk to people who are going to do, um, I believe it's emotionally, I only know it as EFT, but I think it's emotionally focused therapy and it involves like tapping and and um, mind-body interventions. There's people who do dialectical behavioral therapy, which is simply skills face. You know, there's um, traditional psychoanalysis, there's coaching, there's so many different approaches. I am not going to speak to any of those because I don't know enough about them. You can probably tell by my babbling in that particular section that I haven't really updated my worldview on all of the different approaches available in a long time. I can only speak to you from my point of view. Um, and my point of view is that of a cognitive behavioral therapist. So I work with people and you you already know this. You probably don't know the name of it, but just, be, you know, old dogs don't learn new tricks. I just come up with new words for explaining it, but it's basically helping people understand the connections between their thoughts and their feelings and their actions. And a lot of times where I would say is like, I would sit in my office as the therapist and I would be talking to the client and I would say, I can't talk you out of depression. I can't talk you to wellness. This doesn't change for you until you change your behavior. And so what ends up happening is the symptoms of depression create thoughts of low self-esteem. The symptoms of depression create thoughts of low motivation, create feelings of inadequacy, of a lack of self-worth or a lack of faith that the future can be better. And as a result, the depression sufferer chooses behaviors that illustrate that worldview, or they choose new behaviors, but the old thoughts and feelings remain. So they tell themselves a story that the new actions and the new behaviors, quote unquote, didn't work because they still think and feel the same way. It's important to recognize that using this sort of cognitive behavioral model, connecting your thought to your feeling, to your behavior, doesn't work the first time you change your behavior. It has to be a chronic pattern of ignoring the negative thought, ignoring the negative feeling, and living as if and acting as if it's not true.
That's my worldview on it. You've heard me talk about it with this idea that I talk regularly about choosing happiness, that happiness is a choice. We can't control what happens to us. We can only control how we respond to it. That depression is going to be changed and lifted with new actions. One of those actions will be attending therapy and understanding your own behavioral cycle or attending the, you know, seeking some sort of professional point of view on it that you have personal you know, buying into. One of those actions might be addressing and identifying that you are ready to ask for and accept help. But the pattern has to be consistent in order for the sufferer to find relief. Sometimes it is going to, in my biased opinion, in my observation, going to require psychopharmological intervention, antidepressants, or, you know, for some people, anti-anxiety, because I think sometimes people who suffer chronically from anxiety get depressed, you know, are triggered um, because they get so tired of being anxious, they get depressed. So it sometimes does require a medical intervention. I do think that sometimes for some people, they avoid the pill for too long. They, they try too hard for too long to do it on their own without accepting medication. And I think there's other people who don't do enough behaviorally because they just want the pill to solve their problems, but it doesn't really solve the problem. It's about looking at the beast, the thoughts, the feelings you're having, and still, like you've heard me say on the show a thousand times, getting clear on the life you want and making and choosing actions consistent with those regardless of what you think or feel. And one of the things I always remind people is there are a whole host of medical issues that sort of are so shameful or so embarrassing or so scary to talk about that people don't get help for. So we get really, I hear, and this was filling up my inbox too, so much resentment and so much anger at people who have been depressed for so long and the loved ones have done everything and the friends have done everything, but the loved ones still won't get help and the loved ones still won't, you know, get support. That is part of the nature of the beast. It is not an excuse. It is not a reason. It is simply something we need to understand. It's the same thing, for example, with men and prostate problems. How many men do we know who, you know, like are going to the back? bathroom in the middle of the night a thousand times having all sorts of your you know problems controlling their urine flow and all of that and they don't go to a doctor because it's too embarrassing to talk about or they're so afraid of losing their prostate which then affects sexual performance and then you know affects all kinds of things that they don't get help depression is no different we lose our patience <laughs> with depression because it feels, quote unquote, like such an easy thing to fix. It's not easy, but your thoughts of not wanting help, of not of being scared to get help are not reason enough not to get help. Just like you heard several months ago with a woman who rode into the show finding a lump in her breast and scared out of her mind to address it, go to a doctor or tell anybody. It's the same thing. People who, you know, have irritable bowel symptoms and are sick after they eat certain kinds of food. They don't get help. They're in distress. They're suffering. They're hurting, but they're not talking about it because they don't want to hear that they have to stop eating the certain kind of food that's causing that agitation or that their lives are somehow going to be inhibited in that way. Um, we all have things that we've kind of avoided. So part of understanding this as the sufferer and as the loved one is having some compassion around the issue with without holding it as an excuse for not getting help and not getting treatment. It's also really important to recognize in this discussion that thoughts and feelings around suicide are absolutely symptoms of depression. It becomes the fractured lens through which people look at the world. They tell themselves stories that the world is better off without them, that it'll be easier on everybody, etc., etc. They don't want to hurt anymore. They don't want to suffer anymore. It is one of the symptoms that can affect affect some people with depression. Not everybody who gets depressed will think about suicide, but it is true that some people will. So it's important to recognize that as a medical symptom, 
that needs to get reported and it needs to be addressed. And if you're a loved one and you're worried about somebody, you have to say it out loud, just like you would any other medical symptom that you happen to be noticed. And you know, the example I always give is if you saw somebody um, with like, um, a cut on their hand, but it was kind of yellow and pussy and oozing, like you might say you need to go to a doctor for that. And, you know, have you gone to the doctor yet? At some point, you're going to say, this is really serious. This is an infection. You need to go to the doctor. And I don't know a lot of people who would be like, well, I see you oozing and pussing and, you know, everywhere. But like I've told you, you can go to the doctor and you're not. So, you know, piss off. Like, I, I think that with medical issues, um, we're more insistent. We have to carry that insistence for mental health issues as well. And that is true for the sufferer. Just because you're scared, just because you don't believe it'll work, just because your depression and your symptoms are telling you nothing will work are not a reason not to do it. We're not supposed to believe the things we think and feel. We change the story with the actions. It's never a get out of jail free card <laughs> because you're depressed that you don't have to get treatment. And you get to decide as the depression sufferer what kind of treatment you get, but you have to choose something. You have to choose not suffering and recognize the natural consequence of repeatedly choosing not to get help means that at some point, loved ones are going to set their own boundaries with you. That there's not just a bottomless well of support and love and consideration. That the natural consequences is some people will stick with you no matter what, no matter what. You will have a tribe, but some people aren't capable of that because for the loved one, it feels like watching the train wreck. And it feels like seeing the train coming and not being able to do a damn thing about it. Expecting everybody to be capable of staying regardless of what the view is in front of them is an unrealistic goal of loved ones. It's an unrealistic expectation and it's a hard, hard truth when we're talking about this. But some people just can't. Just like some depressed people are going to be completely incapable of changing their story, changing their situation, changing what happens next for themselves. Some loved ones, some friends, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how well-intentioned, are simply going to be incapable of watching. And everybody, the sufferer and the loved one, need to find a way to make peace with that. It's an incredibly hard part of this conversation. It's why everybody just wants to send people to the suicide hotline. Why people just want to say, reach out, I'm here. You know, like it's why people who are depressed are saying the symptom of depression is that I want to hide in my room. This is a really hard conversation that involves hard truths. I don't see lines of people addressing the hard conversations and why it makes it so hard. It's always what we're going to do on this show, and it's why I'm talking to you about it today. It's important to remind everybody, too, that you can't... Um you can't stop help when it feels better. Um, I didn't know how, I just looked at my notes. That's why you just heard me stuttered because I was like, how did I write that? How did I want to say it? But it's important to remember that one of the things that chronically happens with people who struggle with depression is they stop as soon as it feels better or as soon as there's a hope or a promise of it getting better. That is the worst thing that can happen for depression sufferers. One of the things I always <laughs> joked about um, is that nobody, the, the single people who were depressed didn't really need therapy. They just needed a really good matchmaker because I lost, <laughs> I lost so many people to therapy completions when they met the girl or when they met the guy um, because suddenly life seems better and things seem possible and they go off and they start a new relationship and only to find out, you know, regardless of 
if they come back single or, you know, happily mated, that depression has followed them. It is definitely true that loneliness is a part of depression and a huge contributor to depression symptoms. So it's not unheard of that when you start dating and you have a new person in your life that you feel better. It's also not unheard of that after a winter of dark, gray, cloudy days, the sun comes out and you're better. That for some people will be seasonal depression and it's a specific type of depression. But for other people, it's just that um, like snap of the fingers, change of environment things seem better, you can do more things. Um, and then you go off on your merry way and loved ones at this point in time like to breathe a sigh of relief because they think they're off the hook. Their loved one is feeling better. But the best work you can do on depression is when you're well and happy. It's impossible to get you to repair that fractured lens when you're hurting, aching, and feeling so broken because you have to focus on recovery. It is in that time of wellness that um, it's the best way to avoid relapse. It's the best way to avoid having significant serious depressive episodes again is even when you feel better you continue therapy so you can build the building blocks and the skill sets to sort of learn how to resist depression how to catch it at its earlier signs how to respond to it when it happens you don't want to stop getting help just because you've had a good day I, I think it's also important too when we talk about happiness. Um, and this is a scary truth for me to say out loud. And I debated whether or not I was going to share it on the show. But one of the things that keeps happening is we keep hearing in particular, um, you know, Anthony Bourdain, he seemed so happy, um, you know, in, in recent months. How did this happen? He seemed fine. Um, we are hearing a little bit, I think, about some, you know, some stuff that he had, um, you know, going on in those last final days. But I can also tell you, having worked with people who have struggled with suicide, having intervened in moments where people have made suicidal attempts on themselves, I can tell you that some people are happier because they see their way out and they know it's coming. So they don't need to be depressed anymore because they've made the plan. They've had the intent and they're planning on acting on it. They see the relief. They see that, you know, sort of, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and they feel better. That's why for some people, it catches people off guard. That's why it is so critical, so important that if you think something, say something. If you're worried that a loved one is suddenly getting better and that means that they've somehow come up with a plan, you ask and you say, hey, listen, I'm not looking to add cloud to your rainy day, but I know that sometimes when people have struggled with depression and they're suddenly experiencing a period of wellness, it's because they have a plan on ending their lives. I need to make sure you're okay. Okay. So much of it is not having the words. The reason why I'm doing this episode and I'm going into such incredible depth and I'm adding so many points of conversation is to help you have the conversation so it doesn't go back in the dark. It's also if you are struggling, if you are hurting, if you are someone who is currently thinking suicidal thoughts and feelings, it is so important and so critical that you know my personal experience in those moments of intervening, of people having made an attempt to hurt themselves, and I'm working with um, emergency staff to stop that, I have to tell you the fear that comes in those last moments and the regret and the not wanting to die. Sometimes it takes the crisis of epic proportions to wake you up to the idea that you have something to live for. I unfortunately, in the course of my professional career, have been in front of too many people in front of those moments. And I can tell you the number of times I've seen the regret, the fear, and the remorse of recognizing maybe tomorrow would have been better. So all I can say to you is that it's my prayer, my hope, and my wish that you remember that truth as well, because as a professional, it's certainly one of my truths. I also, too, want to really talk to caregivers. I, I hope, too, that 
strugglers and caregivers are listening to both sides of this conversation because at any point in time, you were going to be on both sides of this conversation. Depressed people end up having to take care of other depressed people and, you know, and vice versa. And caregivers have their own periods of depression. So it's really important to understand if we really want to decrease isolation, if we want to increase connection, if we want to keep the conversation going in a really honest, authentic way, we have to talk about both sides and we have to be able to listen to both sides. And I can tell you from personal experience as a caregiver, this shit is hard. (laughs) My husband got hit by a bus when we were dating and you don't get hit by a bus, lose your ability to walk and not have periods of depression afterwards. I have been the caregiver and I can tell you it's hard. It's gut-wrenching. It's scary. You don't know what the F you're doing sometimes and all you want to do is everything and you have these moments of showing up and giving your best and being present and being encouraging and being supportive and coming up with the song and dance and the rainbows and the unicorns and anything that'll bring a smile, anything that'll break it. And it's a little bit soul crushing when no matter how much you want your loved one to feel better, you realize and accept that you do not have that ability to do so. You cannot make it better. So many people who are struggling with depression in these conversations will imply that, will say, if only this, if only that, and they will want to be rescued and they will want to be saved. All we can do is be in the lifeboat with them, present, aware, and help them rescue themselves and be a part of the rescue mission. The only way we can do that is if we have our own life vests on or if we have the oxygen masks on ourselves. And what happens to caregivers when their loved ones are struggling is you want to be everywhere, do everything, and be all things. And that means you crash and burn. And you got to remember what I said at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) This is a marathon, not a race. It will feel like you are solely responsible. There's just no way that's true. Regardless of what you think or feel, it requires a treatment intervention. It requires help. It takes a village. It takes so many different moving parts at so many different times, and you cannot be the savior. You don't want that responsibility. You shouldn't have that responsibility. And everybody needs to know it on both sides of that equation. It's an incredibly hard truth that nobody is talking about in this newsfeed because we want to believe that if we just reach out, if we say, hey, come to a movie, that we've suddenly saved somebody from darkness. And everybody who's been on either side of the situation knows that that simply isn't true. You have to be able to, with your loved one as a caregiver, communicate transparently. Tell the person what you want them to think. I see you're suffering. I see you're hurting. I'm worried about you. I would like to help. I don't know what the F I should be doing. I don't know what would be helpful. How can I do this? How can I do that? This is what I'm observing. This is what I think might help. All you can do is communicate transparently and offer your sufferer, your loved one, an opportunity to tell you what they need and how you might be able to help. And you have to recognize that sometimes they bite the hand that feeds them. You have to be prepared not only with an oxygen mask, but with your own boundaries. And what ends up happening when you're a loved one or a caregiver of someone who's struggling with depression is you feel like you can't put any expectations on them. You can't ask them for one more thing. They are not capable of XYZ, so you accept bad treatment or you accept disrespectful treatment, or you expect you accept something you don't deserve. And depression does not absolve depression sufferers from the responsibility of, of their actions. 
They don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card on their behavior, on the way they treat you, on the way they talk to you, simply because they're depressed. You can use it as a way of understanding them. You can use it as a way of informing yourself of what might be going on for them, that it's not personal, it's not about you, but you do get to have boundaries. You do get to say, this is what I'm going to put up with. This is not what I'm going to put up with. This is what I've tried. It's not working. I've offered you this. I've done this. I've done that. I see that you want help. I see that you want me, but I need you to know that this is where you end and I begin. Nobody talks about the role of boundaries when you're a caregiver in depression. You feel like you have to be there all the time and it's a simply unrealistic expectation that only leads to unhealthy dysfunctional patterns. Anytime I've been the sole person, whether you know I intended to be the person or not, you end up creating this environment where the sufferer feels like they can't be well without you. That's not healthy for the sufferer and it's not healthy for you as the friend, loved one, or caregiver. So it's important to know that and and to think about all the boundary conversations we have on the show and to recognize they're applicable to this situation as well. Depression is not a get out of jail free card for a lack of boundaries. It's also important to recognize that depression and suicidal ideation sometimes feel incredibly manipulative. That's another hard truth that nobody wants to talk about. It's currently filling my inbox, and it's one of the reasons why I didn't read the letters out loud, because I didn't want people to end up in a social media war about about it. But so many times people say, I feel like they're depressed just for attention, or I feel like they stay depressed just for attention, or I feel like suicidal behavior and actions are just for attention. Um, and then the caregivers feel resentful at being told they have to show up. The sufferer feels resentful that nobody's taking them seriously. They're told to ask for help and nobody's listening because they think and feel that it's manipulative, etc., etc. So here's where I land on this. It's true. Sometimes people really do use depression and suicidal ideation as a way of getting attention. But unfortunately, all that means is that it's a sign of a separate mental health condition. Choosing dysfunctional behaviors as a way of engaging people in personal relationships, as a way of engaging a reaction, is a large, significant indicator of something called personality disorders that are also part of a mental health condition that need help and need treatment in order to be resolved. Some people have an inability to simply do relationships. They can't handle the intimacy. They can't handle the vulnerability. They can't handle the autonomy that for some people, their ability to function and move through the world in relationships in a healthy manner is impeded. It's sort of cut off at the knees, if you will. So yes, it's true that people use suicidal behavior to get attention. Yes, it's true that it's an act of engagement. It is not always true that it's intentionally manipulative. Many of these sufferers who use this as leverage, who use this as a way to engage in relationships, have no ability to correct it because they haven't come to understand it. My professional understanding of it in these points is that it the sufferer and the person doing it experiences internal tension. They experience it inside a personal relationship. I wanted to talk to so-and-so, but she hasn't called me in two days. I wanted my loved one to do this, but he didn't. I wanted this. I hoped for that. I wanted my mother to do this. She didn't do that. I wanted my daughter to do this. She didn't do that. There's no words attached to this. There's usually no conscious thinking. What ends up happening is it's an they experience it as an increase in tension and pressure. And at some point in time, they realized that that pressure would get released if they talked about their depression or if they talked about their suicide um, and feelings of suicidal ideation, um, that it's not consciously 
It's not conscious, deliberate choices to manipulate loved ones. Are there people who do it? Yes, but that's not who we're talking about right now. Like, we're, I can't help you distinguish the difference if, between people who are doing this for attention because they're just manipulative and mean and people who are, you know, struggling. This is, that's a shade of gray conversation that requires more one-on-one discussion. What I want people to do is understand the people who seem to always be doing this for attention. They are doing it for attention because they don't know a different way of getting it because their ability to not only look at the world is fractured, but in addition to that, their ability to function inside relationships is fractured. They're kind of broken in that way. And in order to be repaired, they need help and professional support and guidance to look at relationships differently. So the answers as to how to be a caregiver when somebody is talking about depression and it seems like, or suicidal ideation, and it seems like it's just a cry for attention, or when somebody just legit seems to be suffering, you do the same thing. You say the same thing. And you know your personal limits and you know your personal boundaries, because regardless if this is, you know, a clinical episode or a sign of a personality disorder, the answer doesn't change on either side. You still have to have boundaries. You still have to know what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, how you can show up, the limits of showing up, what you're capable of. You have to communicate that and caregivers have to accept that about themselves and accept their limitations and the people who are struggling with depression have to accept that their loved ones are going to have real life, real, like realistic limitations to how much they can show up. It's a really hard conversation. It's a shade of gray. It's another point that again is not in the news feeds, which is why I think it filled up my inbox, but I think it's an important part of the conversation. Um, And I, I hope that saying it out loud gives both sufferers and loved ones some validation that they probably needed to hear coming into this episode. It's also really important for caregivers to tell their sufferers what they want them to know and think. I need you to know that I see you're suffering and struggling. I wish I could help, but I can't. I see you're suffering and struggling. I thought that this might help. I've done this, this, and that. I've hoped it's helped. So often, people stop talking because they don't have the words. The The rule of the day on this show consistently and often is transparent communication. Tell people what you want them to know and think. Stop making assumptions. Don't just be quiet. Say it out loud and give voice to the discussion and see what happens next. I hope in this conversation, I'm illustrating the very real reality that this takes a village, (laughs) that this can't be the sufferer and one other person, the sufferer and a single doctor, the, the caregiver and their sufferer. Like this takes a village. It means asking for help, talking about it, problem solving as community members, problem solving as groups of friends, problem solving as family, seeing who can do what, who can show up, how can people be available, how can't they be available, and recognizing that it takes a village. One of my biggest, biggest regrets after my husband got hurt is I experienced a sense of abandonment. I We both looked around, and I, I shared this story on the show before, but we both looked around and saw nobody. Um, and partly that's because there's members of his family that failed to show up on epic levels. Um, it's <laughs> There's like, I'm not going to hide or cover or you know, uh, run away from that truth. But the other part to this is he and I were new enough into dating that I hadn't met his step family yet. Um, I didn't meet a step family until after he got hurt. I had no idea that there was a whole group of people who assumed we were being inundated with help, who were so at the ready to help us. They didn't know we needed it. I didn't think to ask him like 
is there anybody else? Like, it's really just you and me and my friends and my family. Like, you've got nobody, dude. I wish I had known and I wish I had thought to ask about his step family because holy hell, did our lives get easier and better in 2015 when my husband got sick for eight months. I knew about them at that point. We had clarified the misunderstanding and I had them in spades. So you don't want to assume that there's nobody. You don't want to assume that everybody knows and nobody's choosing to show up. You have to be willing to ask. And when it's this issue of depression, we put this like stigma on it like oh this has to be private so and so would never want the whole family to know they're struggling with depression so and so would never want to be the subject of gossip when we're talking about life or death when we're talking about something as serious as depression like the shame and the stigma are not reasons to keep it between you and the sufferer or the sufferer and one single solitary caregiver you have to be willing to ask for help you have to be willing to offer help you have to be willing to accept help and to and to keep that is so so incredibly critical to this conversation I don't even know how that first year after my husband's injury could have been different for both of us if we had simply asked for help I largely assumed simply by looking around that help was nowhere to be found I really wish I had at least asked the question. He might have said, oh no, there's nobody else. But I literally, because people stopped calling, because people stopped checking in, because I was getting messages of, Heather, you're taking such good care of him. It was like, clearly I was like on an island by myself. It was just me and him. Um, I, I really wish I had asked as the caregiver and as the sufferer, I wish he had kind of thought to tell me really in all honesty. So you want to recognize it takes a village. You want to ask for help. You want to accept help. And we all have to recognize both the sufferer and the caregiver are there are going to be limits to what we can do. The sufferers are going to be limited. The caregivers are going to be limited. That is what makes this conversation so hard to have and why it is so much easier to kumbaya our way through news feeds and send people motivating quotes and memes to say, reach out. I'm here without actually physically reaching out because this is hard. That's why it took me a whole week to come back to you guys on what I was thinking and what I was feeling and how I wanted to say this myself because this is a hard conversation filled with incredibly hard truths that are hard to hear, hard to feel, hard to know. It is not easy. It not being easy and the fact that it's hard is not a reason to not try to get better, is not a reason to not try to help, is not a reason to not keep talking about it, to keep trying to understand it. Sometimes hard is hard, but we find relief and healing in the hard. We find more pain, more suffering, more isolation, more loneliness, and more depression in the darkness and in the silence. That's why I'm bringing this conversation into light. I know I haven't covered every single topic. I know I haven't, you know, delivered every, every single talking point imaginable on the topic, but we're starting the conversation. This is a discussion that people need to be having, questions that need to be asked, clarification that needs to be sought. And people need to be willing to have these hard conversations for health, hope, and healing. Holy smokes. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today on that conversation. It wasn't easy, I know, for the letter writers to reach out. It wasn't easy for me to answer. This is not an easy conversation, but it's important and it's critical. And if you've made it all the way to the end to meet with me, thanks so much for having this conversation with me, for your time and for your trust in me to have it in a way that feels hopeful, respectful, and informative. Thanks for today. I look forward to talking to you next time. Bye for now.